0: Before we get into this and dive in a little bit, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for uh, allowing us to gather here. Lord, as your word teaches not to forsake the gathering. And uh, Lord, we come now to worship in spirit and truth, not only through music or through uh, your word, but also through the teaching and preaching of your word. God, we pray and understand and acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is the primary teacher of your word. And we ask that you would illumine our minds, Lord, to understand, to apply. Lord, to convict. Lord, to confess. And Lord, that we would leave this place as a sent people. May you be glorified and your church be edified this day. For we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. So if you will, if you have your copies of God's Word or whatever you use to open that up, I uh, will go ahead and get you to go to Romans chapter 1. The last time I filled in, I told you we'll just continue on this. So anytime I uh, am up here, we'll just continue to go through the book of Romans. Um, we were in Romans chapter 1, verse 1 last time. told you we weren't getting far. Um, literally, we could spend a lot more time in that one verse, but we'll move on. So we are in chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 2 through 7 today to continue on that that path. But before we even get started, I want to read a quote here to you. And we're going to just focus on this morning what I call elementary truths and getting back to it. I think it is crucial that we always remind ourselves even of that which is elementary. Matter of fact, even Paul says this, yes, we should be on meat, not milk and all these different things, but I think it is crucial that we remind ourselves of the very things that sometimes we often forget that even pertain to the gospel. And this is exactly what Paul is doing here, but this quote says, there are two kinds of magnifying, microscope magnifying and telescope magnifying. The one makes a small thing look bigger than it is. The other makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. We are not called to be microscopes. We are called to be telescopes. Christians are not called to be con men who magnify their product out of all proportion to reality when they know the competitor's product is far superior. There is nothing and nobody superior to God. And so the calling of those who love God is to make his greatness begin to look as great as it, it really is. Now, it might seem cliche, and again, this is why I kind of prefaced the whole topic here that we're going to get into the elementary side of this again. Some of it's going to be what we say, well, this is very surface, but I think we should remind ourselves daily. The fact and why I read this verse is because it's true, because this is what Paul is doing in the very beginning of this letter to the Romans. He is magnifying the greatness of God. Those who were here last time in verses 1-1, if you haven't slept since then and forgot or not the greatest, I'm definitely no Pastor Rusty up here, so... If you remember correctly that the entire first verse was not about Paul. There is a theme to the first verse and it was God himself. He continues this theme throughout verses two through seven and then throughout the rest of the epistle that he goes through. So last time we began our Romans in verse one, we saw Paul claiming his identity as a slave of Christ, a doulos in the original language, one who was bought and owned. We see not only was he bought and owned, but he was called to be an apostle one who was sent by Jesus himself to proclaim God's gospel, that he was set apart by God before he was even born. We notice that Paul's first line in this letter was not about him and what he was doing, but it was about God and what he was doing in and through him. And from the very beginning of the text, we see God magnified, made to be supreme as he is, as he purchased called, and he set apart Paul for his gospel. This was the very opening verse to Romans. And now Paul begins in verse 2 to expound on God's gospel. And this is what we ended with last time. I'm going to begin in verse 1 just for context. And we'll read through 7. It says this, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning His Son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was designated as the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we received grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all Gentiles for the sake of His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to keep this simple. I believe Paul does this and he begins the letter before he jumps into any theological uh, depth, which he does. We get multiples when we get into chapter 3, when we get to 8, when we get to 9, we get into some very deep things that has caused confusion and debates and division among God's people. But he begins with the elementary truths, laying the foundation, the state it all. And this first thing is the very fact that the gospel is promised by God. The gospel is promised by God. You look at verse two, where it begins, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now let me start here to explain the importance of this statement and why it's very important. Matter of fact, uh the, the men who are here on uh Tuesday, the eschatology night where we kind of talked, we got into this. Matter of fact, he gets brought up often about how we live in this era now where the Old Testament and New Testament are separated. We even have well-known pastors who are now saying the Old Testament is obsolete. And the importance of this statement here, we sometimes can separate the Old Testament and the New Testament by saying the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is gospel. As if the New Testament has no law and the Old Testament has no gospel. But this is the complete opposite of what Paul is trying to say here. He is telling the church that this gospel, which he was set apart for, okay, was promised beforehand. Meeting before Christ. Before his incarnation. And it's in the scriptures over and over again. This is not something he came up with in his genius or some fairy tale we read about. We see this first promise in the context of a curse at the very beginning of the scriptures in Genesis. If you did not know this, it goes all the way back to the very first book of the Bible. Remember in the garden after the fall in Genesis 3, what was said of Satan? It's the curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You find this in Genesis 3.15. This is the first promise of the gospel in the New Testament. And you're probably saying, okay, well, if, if you didn't know this, so that doesn't really sound like the gospel. Well, we call this the proto It's the first mention of the gospel. The first encounter of it centuries before Christ would be delivered to the cross, where he crushed the head of Satan, yet at the same time was bruised for our transgressions, we see the gospel promised right there. Contained in the context of a curse. (laughs) So so from there on, we see the gospel. We see it with Noah and the ark. We see it with Abraham and the blessing of the nations through his seed seed. Not seeds. That being Jesus Christ. We see it with Joseph, Moses, King David, etc. We could go on and on and on where we see the glimpse, but we'll take it all the way to Genesis where we see the proto-evangelium. The very first mention, the very first encounter of the gospel that was promised by God. Paul was a pro at the Old Testament. And in respect to this gospel, he not only states that it was promised before him, but through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. The phrase used here for Holy Scriptures is sacred scriptures. When God speaks, the earth melts. Spoken in Isaiah 55, it says his words will not return to me void. Therefore, Paul's affirming the authority of the sacred scriptures, which speak of God's gospel that he is proclaiming in this epistle. In the very beginning, it's an elementary truth. We can no longer sit here and say, whether you say this or not, or know someone that the gospel is only New Testament. This was not a plan B for God. There's only been a plan A the entire time, whether you understand it or not. That's not for us to guess. There are things that are mysteries that we will not be able to wrap our finite minds around. But we'll answer the reason why we can live with peace and joy and all these things knowing that we can't understand. We're going to answer that in just a minute because Paul gives it to us. R.C. Sproul told a story about he cannot stand the bumper sticker that says this, and you've probably seen it, if God said it, I believe it, then it is settled. Maybe you haven't seen it. The Sproul went on to say this, if God said it, it does not matter if you believe it or not, it is settled. And he's right. God's gospel was promised, therefore it is settled. Whether you believe it or not, it's settled. So in today's post-Christian culture, we see that the sacred scriptures are not taken as absolute or authoritative. That is what is attacked today in our post-Christian culture or even spoken of by God. But Paul is telling the Roman church here, he is telling us the gospel, which I have been separated for has been promised by God since the beginning. And the testimony of this promise is revealed in the sacred scriptures. It is revealed in the beginning. God has declared it. So, so church, we can trust the Holy scriptures as Paul did. And should if we are born again. Knowing that because God has spoken through his prophets and apostles, it is settled. Whether you believe it or not, it is settled. Amen. So we see he lays out this, this path that the gospel is promised by God. We're going to continue to, I'm going to continue on that thing. It's promised by God. The gospel is also given by God. Not only did he promise beforehand, he's also now given it. Remember, there's nowhere in here where, where Paul is the, the, the guy who did this, where Peter is the guy who did this. God is the thing. He receives all the glory and we just have the privilege this much to be a part of it. In verse 3, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, another elementary truth that we may all know if you are familiar with Scripture or even Christmas at that point. We see the promise of the gospel which is affirmed in the Holy Scriptures concerns his son, his son being Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And it says next, who was descended from David. Now, let me just pause here for a minute because this is important for the Jew. Old Testament prophecy said that the Messiah, the Son of God, would come from the lineage of David. This was important. They knew this. And oftentimes we would see in Scripture where it reads, Son of David. And though true in one sense, as we will see in a moment, Jesus was both David's son and his Lord. We even see David state this in the Psalms. Paul is reminding his readers that Jesus was born from the line of David. This is important for the Jews. So concerning his son descended from David according to the flesh. Now this word here, this phrase in the original language in Greek is kata sarks. The Greek for flesh. There are two words used in the Greek for the physical body. You got soma and you got sarks. S-O-M-A-S-A-R-X. Soma being the most common usage of the physical body and sarks, which also can mean the physical body and its characteristics. In the original language. But Sarks elsewhere in scripture is loaded theologically. It's a loaded word. Not only can it mean the physical aspects of the body, but it also speaks of the spiritual aspects. For example, when scripture says that which is of the flesh is flesh, it is not speaking of the physical, but of the fallen nature. It is speaking of the old man. It's using the same word. It's loaded theologically. Paul later even uses this term in the physical sense when he says, He has not met Jesus, kata sarks, in the flesh, but on the road to Damascus in the power of the resurrection. So Paul is not denying the virgin birth here, where Jesus brought his deity with him, but bypassing the natural reproductive process by the Holy Spirit was given his sinless humanity. He's not denying it. He's laying it out right here. He has given this. He has given the gospel. The gospel was given to us by fulfilling Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah, Jesus Christ would be born of David in the flesh through the virgin birth in the power of the Holy Spirit, fully God, fully man. God did that. Mary didn't wake up one day and said, oh, I'm going to have a baby and not naturally. (laughs) And it's celebrated by Christians all over the world in what we call Christmas. The gospel promised by God became the gospel given by God and Jesus Christ, our Lord. And church, we can rejoice in the fact that we know the Holy Scriptures affirm what God promised and has given by sending his son to do what we could not do. We can rejoice in that. And not just one time a year. I always tell people that we should always be preaching the gospel to ourselves If you are born again, we preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Why? Because when you wake up, we should be waging war with the flesh. Because the day you let your guard down is the day the flesh will win. That goes for Christians born again. We can't fall. Yes, there's grace. It's another sermon for another day. I'll let Pastor Rusty handle that one. The last set of verses here in verse 4. It says, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the gospel was promised by God. The gospel is given by God and the gospel is declared by God. I'm just keeping with the theme, keeping it simple. If you don't like three point sermons, well, you get one today. Paul summarizes the entire work of Jesus in these first few verses. The entire work of him. The promised gospel comes to pass through Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh, spoken by the prophets, born of a virgin. And here in verse 4, God declares him to be his son in power. Paul makes this claim based off what God did. When Jesus was crucified and buried, the spirit of God in power raised him from the dead. When this took place, it was God declaring to the world and proclaiming that Jesus was his son. Y'all, we live in Myrtle Beach and you go around here anywhere and, and going into general brokerage. I I, mean, my wife really don't want this to happen, but you know, there's billboards everywhere, right? And the team I'm going with, they got billboards everywhere, right? Sarah, they got billboards everywhere. She says, please don't put your face on a billboard. Please don't do it. Don't ever let that happen. I don't want your face on a billboard. Y'all, this is as if God, this is what happened. When God raised his son from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit, it was as if a billboard was put up to the world declaring that this is my son. You see him all around here, whether you pay attention to him or not. And it's cheesy, I know. But if you know me personally, I'm that guy. He's declaring this to the world that this is my son. So how do we know that Jesus is the son of God? Here is the simple answer, and it might not be enough for anybody, but it should be, by the testimony of God himself. Here's the answer I told you through the first question I said that Paul's going to answer for us. How do we know that Jesus is the son of God? Because it's by the testimony of God, not just Paul. When God raised him from the dead, it was declaring to the world that this is him. God declared him to be his son. Many people in this world, there are times of of this, and I think it was Vodi Bauckham who had a lot of conversations like this as well, between an atheist and agnostics alike. Both are in danger of hell. But one seems to bother Bauckham a little more than the other. And the difference between these terms is atheism is about belief, or specifically what you don't believe. Agnosticism is about knowledge, or specifically about what you don't know. An atheist doesn't believe in any gods, and an agnostic doesn't know if any gods exist or not. Paul clearly answers the agnostic view, right? He answers it. When he is saying here that God was declaring Jesus to be his son to the world, when the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, and this may be the only answer some get, But it is enough because it is the testimony of God. It's enough. And as you will see later in Romans 1, Paul says that God has manifested himself so clearly that no one will be without excuse. He answers the agnostic view right here. The problem with agnosticism is that they blame God for their disobedience and are unwilling to acknowledge with all the evidence given by God that he exists. So we believe Jesus is the son of God because God declared him to be the question that really this ask is God's testimony enough. And if you are born again, you are set apart, born from above that God's testimony is enough. Everything in his word, the sacred scriptures is enough. It's elementary. I know. But it's something count. Just 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 think about it. How often are you going back to these elementary truths when it comes to that? Because for me personally, when it comes to these conversations, the first place I always seem to head towards is the deep stuff. Nobody can understand the deep stuff until they have a foundation. No way. Don't even dare try to get into the doctrines of grace. Don't dare try to get into predestination and election and all these things that are trigger words for people in this culture. Because when we were believers and we were saved, you didn't have a knowledge of that stuff either. The only thing you had a knowledge of is the very thing that Paul just covered here in these first seven verses. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in order to understand that there's good news, you must know that there's bad news first. The bad news is you can't keep it. I can't keep it. This testimony is enough. And the reason this brings us so much peace It's the fact that it comes from God and not anyone else, not even the apostles. They're just the messenger, but they didn't come up with it. The last few verses here, Paul kind of ends. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We then see Paul shifting from his call, from his call to ours. Yes, I see ours because yes, he's writing to a Gentile church. He's writing to the Romans here, but it applies. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So this grace and apostleship have a purpose here. What's the purpose? Well, it's in the next clause to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He's also speaking To us, this is a timeless piece of passage. This is a scripture that is timeless, speaking to all those who are set apart before the foundation of the earth, to those who Christ Himself prayed for that weren't even in existence yet. Paul shifts here, saying to the church in Rome and to us now that we too are called, called to what? To belong to Christ. We are his, and he has sent us to proclaim this very gospel that Paul is speaking about. We have been saved by grace through faith to bring about the obedience of faith for his namesake among the nations. Even in the call to us, the theme is still God. It's still the glory of God. That is our marching orders. That is where we find our purpose is because we glorify God. And in glorifying God, we're edified. It's not, we come to church in order to find all the ways how the church can serve us, but it's the other way around. It's what the church is. is to glorify God, building one another up, edifying one another, rebuking if necessary. Finally, Paul ends with a common greeting. I want you to notice what he says here. He says called to be saints. This word saints means holy, set apart. We are called to be holy, set apart, just as Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. And let us be reminded daily of the gospel in our own lives, that we may be obedient in our high calling as saints. It's something to remember. Paul is before he gets into anything else is reminding them. And if you notice, if you read through any of his epistles, if you go to him and just read them, he is always reminding them always. Even when he's rebuking the Corinthian church, he's reminding them. In Galatians for pastor rusty. I mean, he's sitting here saying, how is it that you have left so quickly? Always reminding them. So, if in the first century, Paul is having to remind the church, then we, we think we don't need it, we got it. Always reminding us. But I think it's also when we read these entrances into the epistles, we forget about them. We just want to get through it so we can get to the meat, right? How many of y'all sometimes you say, where he gets into it, Paul, slave Jesus Christ, grace peace to you, love, blah, blah, joy, great. Let's go. Okay, let's get into it. But if we believe that every word, every cross T dotted I is the word of God, and it is all authoritative, then everything in this book is important. Everything has a reason. If it was written by God through the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration, through man, every bit of it is inspired. Therefore, even the prologue <coughs> to the epistle has application. And the application is that Paul's reminding us. He's reminding us. Paul then gives a form of Jewish greeting where one would say, Shalom, alakim, peace unto you. And then another would say, alakim, shalom, unto you, Peace. It's the first seven verses of Romans. We ain't even got to Romans 8. As we kind of transition to the Lord's table and we get ready for communion. This is a segue. Elementary truths. When they are mentioned, we remember. We know them. And if you are here today... And some of this might seem like a foreign language and you don't know. Then that's okay too. The whole point is that when people, whether wherever you're at, the gospel is proclaimed. And Paul did that very thing in these seven verses here today. Whether it was a reminder or whether it's the first time you've ever heard it. My prayer is that if God is drawing you to himself, then today is the day of salvation. And if you know you are sitting here and you're not born from above and you're not born again, then the Bible commands that you repent and turn away from your sin. Call upon the name of the Lord. Confess Him. Confess your sins. And turn. And that's my prayer. The Lord is drawing you. For those who are here who are born again, and as we come to this table, and his brother Chris comes up and he leads us through this, be reminded of why we come to this. And he's about to give you the script to it right there. Why we come to the table. One, why we do it weekly and not just once every three months. Because it's a constant reminder when you partake and we gather around this table. Take it seriously. Don't let it become a check on a box. And if you are not born again, if you are not in Christ, we just ask. No shame, no embarrassment. Let these elements pass by you. But I encourage you to talk to someone after this service. To me, Pastor Rusty, to Chris, any, anyone. Don't leave this place. It might be simple. and It might be elementary. Oh, but how often we forget. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your grace again and for your mercy. We thank you for this word. I thank you for the first seven verses in Romans. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Because the richness, Lord, and the thing that is just surrounded by you and your glory. But God, even myself just reading and going through this again. These first seven verses, I'm reminded. I'm reminded of your glory. What you have done, Lord, this gospel that you promised, this gospel that you have given and this gospel that you have declared to us. You have done this. No one on this earth or those who have gone before us can ever say in our self-determined wills, that we have done something. But the only thing that we have brought to the table of salvation is our sin. Now, God, I pray for those who are under the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray for them. I pray for their families. God, I pray for those who are here that might be waging war against you or enmity with you. Father, God, I pray that if you're Holy Spirit, that you would draw them to yourself, God. That you enable them to repent, to turn from their sin, to confess their sins, to confess you as Lord. As we come to this table to remember, may you be glorified. May this church be edified. May we be sent as they sent people from this place, proclaiming the gospel to all nations until your next return. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.